0: Men are in a very confusing state. There is an epidemic out there in terms of what it means to be a man. Am I too masculine? Am I not masculine enough? What are women really wanting? Welcome to
1: another episode of the Big Picture Business Podcast. We're so excited that you are here with us today. We have another amazing guest and I'm just going to pass this right to Rory and he's going to introduce him
2: properly. Right. So I want to introduce you to Pradeep Songha, who is the world's leader in complete strategic advising. And he's widely known as the strategist for businessmen. And he teaches how to become the complete man. His personal mission is to help men grow their businesses massively, increase their personal fulfillment in life and improve their relationships with their wife and kids. Now, this is a tall order. So Pradeep, I hope you are ready to deliver and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. I'm ready. Thanks, Rory and Dominica, for having me.
1: Absolutely. We're excited to jump in, especially because I'm I'm the woman in this conversation, <laughs> right? My mind goes to like, wow, okay, so many tips and tools, like we're going to get into it. But I want to know more about your story and how you really fell into this world of like, you know, leading men on their journey and on their path? How did, how did you fall into this?
0: Yeah, well, so I, I would say it was basically my entire lifetime's worth of work that kind of led me to this path. And it really started off in a small town in British Columbia. When, and Rory's close to where I grew up in Kelowna, British Columbia. But I grew up on an orchard because when my parents immigrated from India in the 70s, all they knew how to do was physical labor. And they landed in Kelowna and started working hard. So grew up on an orchard, which was a very interesting environment for me to grow up in, because it was very mindful. And I spent a lot of days out there in the orchard by myself, just nature and myself. I did that for a couple of decades. I was working in the orchard even when I was in my 20s. And that gave me a different perspective on life. And plus, I I had two parents who were immigrants, traditional Indian background as well. So the gender roles were very specific in our culture and the Indian culture. So I understood the dynamics of men and women and how we operate. But what really led me to what I'm doing today is is my dad. Came here with $11 and eventually he built a successful business, never really struggled with money, but he struggled with fulfillment in his life. And you could tell my dad was a very passionate man, but he couldn't find a, an outlet because he just wasn't educated. There was no support system. And what ended up happening was his outlet was alcohol. He, you could say, was an alcoholic, struggled from alcoholism. When my dad was sober, he was an amazing guy. He had powerful presence as a man. But when he drank too much, you'd just be a completely different person. And he was a big guy. He had some challenges inside, whether that was anger or sadness or resentment, whatever it was. But sometimes that escalated when he drank too much. And it was very scary. And so I, at a very early age, started to study his behavior because I wanted to predict what to do when he would drink too much. And so I started to study his behavior, my mom's behavior their dynamics, my dad's dynamics in terms of how he lived life. And I really got into the psychology of human beings at that time. A long story short, I studied that psychology and neuroscience my entire life, along with business. And you know, my life's mission is to help men. And here's the reason why is ultimately my dad's goal was to hit 65. And that was going to be the age that he was going to take his foot off the pedal, still operate the business, but that's kind of like the pension age. It's a pension age in Canada. It's the age where a lot of immigrants say hey, we came to this country and we did it. The government actually gives them, you know, a little bit of a return for for their work. But what ended up happening was because of his alcohol, his diabetes escalated and he died at 64 and a half from a sudden heart attack. And so I'd like to say that is a one-off. It's not. It's very common in terms of how men live their lives. And so I'm also a firm believer because I saw it in my dad. And I also have a unique upbringing where I was raised by my grandparents. My grandfather was a very spiritual man. And he taught me a lot about spirituality. And I can talk about that in a little bit. But long story short, there's a lot of men out there who struggle, and they don't know how to get past their struggles. And they get up, caught up in the cycle of being a business professional or an entrepreneur and chasing that level of achievement when there's other aspects of their life that they're unfulfilled in or incomplete in. That's why you talk about being the complete man. And so there's a lot of men who are extremely successful that I work with, extremely wealthy. But they feel like something's missing. They don't have the relationship with their spouse or their spouse is completely gone, but they don't have the relationship with their kids. Life is a system. It's a full circle. So if we're missing one element of our life, it impacts every other element. And that's ultimately my vision is to help men live a more fulfilling life because I'm a firm believer that when you have a strong man, a fulfilled man in a household, you have better relationships between parents and then you have better parenting and kids. We are certainly seeing the impact of not having healthy family units in society today. I could say Canada. Canada. We're still a little bit further behind than the U.S., but the U.S. has been struck hard because over 50% of families' kids are being raised without full time fathers. It's a challenge and we need to address it.
2: I had a similar kind of experience growing up. Now, my dad wasn't around, but he had a gambling addiction, which kind of left me growing up thinking that we were so extremely poor. He had, you know, left my mom with like tons of credit card debt that she spent years paying off. The part that you mentioned was that, you know, you got to spend a lot of time with your grandparents. After my parents got divorced, my grandparents and my mom and I, we all moved in together and lived together for 10 years. And that experience shaped my life. And I'm sure it's the same for you having your grandparents be part of your life. You get that different generational aspect and view of the world.
0: Oh, absolutely. There's a level of wisdom, I think, that the elders have, whether it's grandparents or uncles or aunts, that I think we've taken for granted, even in the next generation. The extended families are, are dwindling. You're absolutely right, Rory. It's, it's I wish I could spend more, I would have spent more time with my grandparents, learning from them and getting their wisdom, because it is definitely priceless.
2: I feel the same way. Even with the amount of time I got to spend with them, I wish there would have been more time. Now, I wanted to ask you, because, you know, you talk about the complete man, even becoming like, you know, an alpha male but there's also this other side that I see out there. People who talk about like this alpha male side where it's very manly. You've got to dominate other people, dominate like everything. Are you talking about the same thing or is your approach different?
0: So what I talk about is, is uh, the complete man is a full concept and I can get into that, but it's really uh, an element of that is being the mindful alpha male. So when I say alpha male, it's there's a mindful element to it. And I'll give you a little bit of background as to why. So growing up, I got to see a lot of different sides to men. I would say it was very unique. Unique in terms of the culture that I grew up in and seeing the differences, again, in men and women. My dad was, as I mentioned before, a very amazing man when he was sober. He had presence. People would still, you know, still say when he walked into a room, you didn't have to see him to feel his presence. He was also an ex-police officer in India, very masculine man, but also very emotional. He taught me that it's okay to be emotional because no one tested his masculinity, but he was able to cry and he was able to show emotion. And that's where I learned that aspect from. My grandfather was also in the British Indian army for 30 plus years in India and fought in multiple wars. I saw that side to him. But he was a very disciplined and valued and principled man. He taught me how to be a man. And he said, you know what? The most important thing that you have as a man are your values, because people can take your education, your certifications, your home, your money, a shirt off your back, family members, because he saw it. That was a state in, in India at that time. But he said, the one thing they can't take away from you are your values. So I learned very strong values as a young man. But interestingly enough, my great grandfather in India was a spiritual teacher for 50 to 60 years. So my grandfather taught me spirituality at a very young age, meditation, mindfulness. So I grew up with that. And so I saw this dichotomy of, you could say war and my dad being in the police and then this whole spiritual aspect. So I saw this different spectrum of how people can live, not just men, but women as well, but how you can be balanced in between. And that's why I talk about the mindful alpha male, because it's an element. You might not be able to see it behind me, but I have a statue of a Buddha and a statue of, of a helmet, which represents being a warrior, but also having that mindful aspect as well. So there's that healthy element. So being the mindful alpha male is about taking charge of your life. People don't understand what alpha male means. It means being a leader. The term alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, which is beginning in the origin. And I believe every man should be a creator of his life, of his destiny, and be the leader of his family. That's a responsibility that we take when we have a family. But there also has to be a mindful element. We also need to understand, and this is another concept in Buddhism, that when we make a decision to do something, take action, we need to understand the ripple effect throughout the universe. And that's how the Buddha said, make your decisions and actions as if it's going to have a ripple effect throughout the universe, but also be humorous enough and comical enough to understand that it may not make a difference at all. So take yourself lightly, but also understand that it can have a massive impact on other people. And that's what being mindful is. Now I can say this, living in Canada, we've kept a close eye on what's been happening in the US, all politics aside, right? This isn't about politics, this is about leadership. Men have stepped into a very dangerous role when it comes into not being mindful, perhaps alpha male, but not being mindful in terms of what the repercussions are and what leadership and what mentorship we're giving the younger generation so these elements need to balance out.
2: Yeah. So it's more of a, a complete holistic approach rather than like a toxic masculinity, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. Because I don't believe in toxic masculinity. I think that was a term that has been misconstrued and misused because masculinity is no more toxic than femininity. It's a beautiful thing. People just need to understand the differences in what they mean.
1: I could not agree more. Anytime I hear someone say person has toxic masculinity, I go, what are you talking about? I don't, <laughs> I don't understand. Look, being being a woman. I'm I'm an American. I'm a woman. I'm a business owner. It's like the best time in history to be a woman. It's crazy, right? But then why is it then that I look at my male peers who unfortunately feel like they're getting stepped on, not necessarily by women, but by so many of their peers because they're male and being shut down because they're being called beta or that they have toxic masculinity. I don't understand. I'm way, I mean, I'm not a man. I don't understand how that feels, but from where I'm I'm sitting, it it seems completely incorrect. What do you say to just where we are as a society in this generation, this day and age to those that might be feeling like they don't know their place as a male in today's society?
0: I would say the first step, and I always tell people this is find someone who you want your life to be like. You want to emulate those around you. If you have a guy friend who has a great family relationship, a great marriage and has a great family, become a part of that person's circle. I think what we've done is we need to step up more as men and be better mentors because that's something that I think we've lost. We're not doing that as much as we should because that mentorship is important. The biggest mentors in my life were my dad, both good and in a challenging way. I would never change that for the world because if my dad wasn't who he was, I wouldn't be the person I am. And I wouldn't have the skills that I do and my grandfather and other people in my life. So having mentorship is absolutely critical. And the other part is it's okay to feel the way you're feeling because right now men are in a very confusing state. There is an epidemic out there in terms of what it means to be a man. Am I too masculine? Am I not masculine enough? What are women really wanting? It's really interesting because I have counterparts, my colleagues who work specifically with women. And one of the biggest challenges that women in their thirties, are having is that they can't find men that they're attracted to because they're not masculine enough because they're not taking the lead for example they're not taking the responsibility and the accountability so the first step is finding a mentor that you want your life to be like they have something similar to what you want and be very careful with your mentors because there's a lot of people I would say shoveling stuff out there that's why I'm very careful with the work that we do also uh, as an influencer I have to be very careful in terms of what I say and what the people in our organization say because Because it has a ripple. People will believe anything these days. And so we have to be very mindful of what we share and what we say. And it has to be backed by research. That's why we back a lot of our stuff up with neuroscience and research and statistics. We just don't want to be saying things. And it's soul, our job as men to question what's actually happening out there and to stand up. I think that's the other thing that we are lacking right now is standing up against other men. We will see poor leadership. We will see abuse. We will see these behaviors that we know are wrong, but we as men are not stepping up and doing anything about it, or very few are. And that's just perpetuating the situation. I would say it's a big challenge, but it's a challenge that we're tackling. And I think it's actually getting better because there's more awareness. And I think more conversations are happening as a result of it.
1: In terms of standing up, do you think that's because of political issues or?
0: Yeah, I think it's a combination of power. Traditionally, men have had more power, right? And traditionally, men have had power and not been questioned. And what's happened now is that That power that was under the radar before has now become basically out there and it's become almost abusive and it's okay to be that way. Let's just say if I'm in a position of power, I still have to watch my words. Whatever my belief system is, whatever I'm saying to people, I still have, I can't openly cut people down or shouldn't openly cut people down and put people down just because of race or color or whatever it is or sexual orientation, whatever that might be. So I think in the last few years, I know for the last few years, because we've done a lot of research, it's actually gotten worse and worse and worse. So politics absolutely has a part to play in this. And I'm not playing the political game. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is even in Canada, that behavior has changed significantly. We're seeing a lot of that stuff become almost mainstream to be able to be almost abusive.
2: I would say just having that awareness of having lived in Canada, having lived in the U.S., it was a culture shock moving to the U.S. and seeing how deeply embedded racism is into the country as a whole. Because it was never a thought when I was living in Canada. Really? I came here and I was like, what's wrong with everyone? And we sometimes forget that so much of it is just the history of how the U.S. was founded and things that have been implemented, that there's things that are underlying. It's underneath, you know, like I didn't even grow up with. To see it from an outside perspective is very eye-opening. And then to understand it, having been here, you realize that it probably is easier to change it in Canada than it is in the U.S. Yeah. Because it's so deeply ingrained. Like, th- think about that. If you don't grow up with that type of experience or it's not as deeply embedded into the culture, then you have less people who are that way. But when it is so deeply ingrained as a fundamental belief and it passes on from generation to generation to generation without it being questioned, it makes it harder to overcome. It doesn't mean it can't be. And it doesn't mean there hasn't been improvements. It just makes it harder. It's like a you're pushing that boulder up a hill and it's a much bigger boulder than maybe in some other countries. Pradeep, what I want to ask you, you know, you you talk about the, the neuroscience of performance. What does that mean and how does it apply to someone like who's running a business or trying to improve their life?
0: Well, so uh, what ended up happening was also when I was younger, I started to study a lot of brain science at that time. And this was in my teens. And this was before neuroscience was, you can say, mainstream or even talked about. And I was able to do these things that I thought were normal. So I had the photographic memory I could memorize a 500-page textbook word for word. I could outperform in sports, even though I didn't practice as much. So I did all these things that I thought was normal. And it wasn't until I was in college that one of my peers said to me, you know, that's not normal. You you (laughs) shouldn't be able to memorize a 500-page textbook word for word. It wasn't anything special. Like I didn't have a special gift. What I just did was I learned how the brain worked and operated And I use that to my advantage. These are the elements that we teach from a performance standpoint. So I've been studying neuroscience for the last 25 years. We've incorporated it into a lot of the work that we do with men on the personal performance side, because in business, one of the biggest challenges a lot of guys have, or even women, I don't have enough energy. I'm working my butt off in my business. Then I come home and I'm like, I'm physically there with my family, but I'm not there mentally. Like my mind is just gone. And how does that impact their life? Well, it impacts their life because they're sitting there thinking about work when they're with their family and then when they're at work, they're like, I should be a better father and husband and stuff like that. So what we do is we show them how their brain works and how their body works, how to have more energy, how to have better decision making, because our brain has certain patterns that it uses for decision making, how to get more motivated, how to have uh, more inspiration. We've partnered up with over a dozen universities in Canada and the US and internationally now on neuroscience studies and entrepreneurship and very specific studies in terms of, okay, how does a brain, how do we train our brain to have more inspiration and motivation? How do we reduce stress levels? A lot of the science has intersected with also philosophical and spiritual practices as well, because one of the best practices to reduce stress and actually increase your cognitive ability is meditation. Neuroscience has now shown and confirmed that meditation has significant impact and benefits to your brain, the way your creativity works and actually decision making. So these are the kinds of things that we're teaching people that has the science backing so that they can actually perform at a level that they've never performed at before. Imagine being able to get twice as much work done in half the time. Imagine being able to have so much energy that you're not feeling tired in the evening when you're with your family. That's where the science comes in.
2: You mentioned 12 minutes. Why 12 minutes? Why not four? Why not 20? Why, why is it 12?
0: <laughs> the scientists haven't determined yet why 12 minutes, but what they found is that 12 minutes is a minimum threshold for them to see significant changes through the brain scans and studies to show that there's some improvement in the brain cognition and the way it
2: operates.
1: Okay, so at at least 12 minutes.
0: Yes, at least 12 minutes a day.
2: What about for the people who've tried meditation and then they say, well, I can't get my mind to focus. Is there some type of strategy that you could give them to, you know, so that they could actually implement 12 minutes of meditation in their day?
0: Yeah, so here's, that's probably the most common Thing I hear is I I just can't meditate. I've tried before and I can't. First of all, there's different types of meditation. You can actually meditate as you're walking. Your mind may actually go into a meditative state as you're walking. So I used to do a lot of walking meditation as a kid. That was a form of meditation. So there's different types of meditation. I would recommend people trying. There's guided meditations where you can listen to music or someone's voice and they can guide you through the process. There's free flow. You let your mind wander, maybe in a dark room. So there's many different types of meditation. That would would be my first thing is try different types right? And see what works for you because everybody's brain is different. Something that works for me may not work for you and vice versa. The second thing is just like exercise. You have to try it. You have to continue to get better at it. You have to continue to evolve and put the reps in because if you're just trying to do it once or twice or two times or three times, and it's not getting better and you give up, it's not going to work out that well. Keep going at it. And if you're persistent and consistent, I guarantee you at some point in time, when you feel there's going to be a moment where you actually go into a state. And you're going to be like, this is what I feel like. Oh, my God. (laughs) It sounds like you've had an experience. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That feeling of just like, whoa, it's like entering into a completely different world, but it's my mind. I downloaded a year ago, the 10% app. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that one at all. I was having a really hard time sleeping and someone said, Oh, you've got to download this app. All the entrepreneurs are using it. I'm like, okay. It took me like two weeks to get into it I'm like this. What am I doing? And then they said, well, try, you know, try listening to it before you fall asleep. And it just put me in the most deep sleep. And I felt so relaxed when I woke up the next morning, <laughs> I felt like I could take on the world. Like this app is amazing. And then I also noticed that when I stopped doing the meditations before I went to sleep at night, cause I, you know, for, I forgot, or you know, my daughter, kept me up or whatever, went back to me feeling really exhausted in the morning. It's interesting. And I, I appreciate that you saying it's kind of like sets and reps, right? Like you're working out, you have to keep
0: doing it. They've actually shown now and, and they've come out with it that, so we work with organizations in the U S and Canada, which I really, can't speak to, but high performing, high stress, high anxiety type of roles. We found now that the number one thing to reduce your stress and increase your productivity and performance is meditation. So there is a significant return on your investment if you continue to try and continue to try, because at some point you will feel that and it will get through. The other thing is it is Everything else that happens in your life impacts how you meditate. So if you're having an extremely stressful day or you're constantly on your phone or on screen time or whatever that is, and then you try to meditate, good luck. Yep. Because it's a challenge, right? So everything else you do in your life, it's not just like, hey, look, I can meditate for 12 minutes and then the rest of my life can be chaos. That's not the point because true meditation, the stigma that meditation is being like a monk sitting in a cave and it's silence, right? And living a minimal life. No, it's not. True meditation is living your life to the fullest. That's what true meditation is. Being in a meditative state while you're actually fully awake. It's a practice of living your life to the fullest. So if you're doing high stress and all these things, it's going to impact impact your ability to meditate. And that's why a lot of people can't meditate is because the rest of their life is kind of in chaos. So if you balance that part of your life out, then this part of your life can actually get better as well. And you can actually start to meditate more effectively. That has an impact. Another quick tip that I tell people to use is do it when you're tired, right when you get up in the morning and right before you go to sleep when you're tired, because your brain is already going into those natural alpha and theta brainwaves, which are the brainwaves that you want to be in for the meditative state. Those are just some tips that you, people can use to get their meditative practice a little bit better.
1: Really good advice.
2: Reminds me like I've always thought that like when I'm going through my day, I go into meditative states with a lot of stuff that I am doing. It's you know, especially being creative, like if I'm writing a song or something, it's always felt like this meditative type experience, like
1: looks like it too. (laughs) Right. Right. Totally.
2: I get done with it. And I'm like, oh, wow, there's a song here. How did I write that? If I like just tried to mentally process that idea, you know, writing this song, I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Right. But then I just sit down, I do it, I get into that state and it just comes out. What do you say to people about like meditation and the creative process and how that goes together?
0: Well, I think what you're talking about, there's more and more of science that's actually coming out now. So this is what we call the zone. This was talked about about a hundred years ago where they thought the zone and meditation were actually. spiritual practices were very similar. And they are similar to a degree, but there's also distinct differences. So what you're talking about is actually getting into the zone when you're awake and you're actually playing music, for example, you know, you're riffing, you're going through and and you're having those amazing moments. That's because your brain is in a very similar state to meditation, but it's actually not. It's actually what we call the flow state or, or, or the zone state. And that is a prime state for creativity as well. And that is amazing. That's when people become extremely productive. That's when people are able to have these genius thoughts and patterns. And that's when, if you can get into, if the other players in your band can actually get into that same zone, you guys are creating this magical piece and you're feeling each other without actually communicating or whatever it is. That's the power of our human, you could say brain and soul. There's actually more studies and science coming out of the, the difference between spiritual practices and what we call the zone. And I think probably within the next decade, we're going to have some more science behind that.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about your book, Switching Gears a little bit, if we may. (laughs) So what was the inspiration behind turning everything you know into the book? Did you just decide, you know what, people need to have this in their hands? How did did it come
0: about? Yeah, that's one of it. I actually found out. So this is um, my third book. So I I co-authored one and then wrote another one. And then this book, it was written in 2020 from start to finish. By the time we published, it was done by the end of 2020. And there's a few reasons why I wrote this book. A, because all these things were overflowing in my mind. I said, I got to put this down, although they're in our programs and stuff like that. I'm like, I need to make this public. So I put it in a book. Second, it, it was a timing. It was 2020. It was COVID. It was when the lockdowns first started to happen. I said, okay, I could see, we could see what was happening and the challenges that men in particular were facing or going to face. Like we almost went into predictive mode and said, if this continues, what will happen? And we knew that a lot of entrepreneurs, business professionals who lost their jobs or businesses were going to have be challenged. Their family situation is going to be challenged. People are going to go into depression, unfortunately, even suicide. So we said, okay, let's get down. Let's write this book, make it very practical so that people can have a tool book. It's almost like a workbook or a tool book for people to actually put actionable steps into place. And interestingly enough, what we found is that the feedback that we've received have been from women as well, because women have been reading our book. Half of our business actually comes from women. Our referrals come from women because they want the men in their lives to be more successful or be more failed And directly as well, they want to have better relationships. And, and so kind of a cycle there. We were very lucky that the timing was right for us when it came to the book. So that was the inspiration was really helping men and the timing just kind of fell into place.
1: And you've actually given our audience a gift can you talk a little bit about that as well
0: yeah yeah uh, for sure the uh the audiobook and the digital version so the digital pdf are available at a discount for your audience so you can get 75 percent off by using the promo code victory 75 so that's victory the number 75 and going to the website completemanaudio.com to be able to uh put that in.
2: I want to say, you know, I, I love your cover. My business is actually helping entrepreneurs write books to create credibility, trust, and authority. It's just, it's very similar, you know, with like covers that we put together with the author on the front. I know how valuable a book is to people's businesses. And the fact that you went out, you did it. This is your third book. Like most people don't even get their first book done. I just want to congratulate you for getting it done and for taking the time to actually make it a priority. Oh,
0: thank you. I think the next book that we've been asked to write is uh, The Complete Woman. And I didn't feel 100% (laughs) comfortable writing that because our our editor was um, Deepak Chopra's editor. He basically said, you got to write a book on The Complete uh, Woman. I said, you know what? Um, Maybe in a couple of years, because, you know, I'm not a woman. I actually do work with women as well, but we have our, like my colleague and I will probably write that next one. And because she works intensively and extensively with women, obviously a a book like that should be written by a woman, I believe.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to it. But I also fully intend to pick up the complete man. I think that's really important, especially like you said, for the men in my life to help champion and encourage super important.
2: I think we have to have like a a good understanding of both sides. You reading the complete man makes you have a better understanding of men. And then for me, reading the complete woman will make me have a better understanding of Of women, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Because if we can understand how the other person thinks, and this is why there's a lot of science in this book as well, not complicated science, but basic science to show the points that, hey, look, men and women are different in a lot of ways. In many ways, we are very similar in the same, but in very distinct and important ways, we are different. And here's the science behind it. And here's why our behaviors are different. And there's nothing wrong with being a woman and nothing wrong with being a man and nothing wrong with being different. But here are the differences. And here's how we can understand them and get along better. We should not have this power struggle right now that we are having between men and women. And this whole confusion about gender, like that's a whole other topic right now in terms of this gender neutrality, where it's not okay to be a man or like everything has to be neutral now, which is confusing people even more. So, you know, I talk a little bit about that in the book as well.
1: Oh, good. I'm looking forward to that part. (laughs) Well, Pradeep, thank you so much. And once again, if you guys are interested in picking up a copy of The Complete Man, you can go to thecompletemanaudio.com. This has been awesome.
2: Yeah. So enlightening. Thank you, Pradeep, for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, guys, that is it for this episode. We'll see you next week. Bye.